got your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 7. It's a very long chapter, and, and what I like about this chapter is that it's not necessarily this huge miracle. It's not necessarily these, these huge, massive dialogue, like a huge, massive teaching session where he's investing into the disciples. There are, I guess you could say, four encounters. There are four dialogues. There are four discussions, four interactions in real life that the Lord Jesus has with different people. And when you look at each of these, because there's 52 verses in the chapter. It's a long chapter. I'm not going to read the chapter to you, but we are going to work through it. So if you have a Bible, please make sure your Bible is open because we're going to be looking at this chapter because what's revealed in each of these dialogues, what's revealed in each of these interactions is what I've called today's message is that it's the problem with people. It's the problem of people and, and how people view Jesus, you have these four pictures that are accurate portrayals of the four views or four of the many views that people have of Jesus today. I recall a pastor when asked, what's the difference between Jesus that you serve, the Jesus of the Bible, and all the other religions of the world? Actually, this past Wednesday night, I was doing a a discussion with a bunch of, it's about 50, 50, 60 people at another church, and they invited me to come and speak, and, and was just talking with them, and, 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 and we're talking about purpose, the purpose, how do you discover your purpose in a world full of so many different purposes, and it was really interesting sitting down discussing that with them, and when asked this question about different religions and different views and things like this, one of the best ways to look at the legitimacy of a worldview, the legitimacy of a theology, the legitimacy of an, of an ideology is how they view Jesus, is how they view Jesus. Actually, in 1 John, we are told that if there is a spirit that denies that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, then that is the spirit of Antichrist. So you need to be aware of how do they portray Jesus? How do they view Jesus? And if their perception, if their presentation of Jesus is different to how he presents himself within the scriptures, then that's not a view. That is not a, 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 an ideology, a theology to follow. And so we have these four pictures, what I call the problem of people that we're going to look at today. And if you start off in verses 1 and 2, we're told that it's the Feast of Tabernacles, this, this festival of booths, uh, Sukkot, it's called. And what this, this festival is, is we have this, the, the celebration of remembrance, of, of reconciliation, of, of reminding themselves of the greatness of God and delivering them from Egypt. And it's a wonderful festival where they share food, they, they talk and they discuss, and they recount everything that God has done. And, and as we look into this passage today, I want you to, to liken yourself or to see which picture that you would either encounter in your own life or that you would maybe even align yourself with to a certain extent. So let's pray and let's seek the God of the Word to teach us what He has to say to us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent to live, to die, and to rise again so that we might know life. Thank you that we know him as the Lord of lords and as the King of kings. 
thank you that we know him as the preeminent, transcendent, sovereign king who reigns over all. And now we come into your presence and ask that you will open your word to us and that by your spirit you will reveal yourself to us. That in a world full of darkness, in a world full of opposition, you will equip us by your spirit to walk and to witness, as shared last week, in the power of your spirit and to shine as a light for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, in verses 1 and 2, we're told that Jesus wants to remain in Galilee because there are death threats made upon him. If you look at verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 7. And the first picture that we are given here comes from Jesus' own family, comes from his brothers. And it's a picture of what I call a picture of comfortable denial. A picture of comfortable denial. Have you ever noticed how in your own relationships you can get so used to things, you get so acquainted with things, you start to take various things for granted. You start to underappreciate the very people in your homes because they're just always there. You become so familiar with it that it's just like, eh, whatever. I think, I think this even happens in our faith. I think this happens as we come Sunday after Sunday as we celebrate different things, that we get involved with different activities, as we look to share the gospel, we can be so, become so accustomed to, to being called Christian that in some cases it might even lose all meaning to us as the child of God, as a disciple of Christ. So in verses 3 and 4, you see the result of this. In this case, it's Jesus' own brothers who demonstrate this idea of comfortable denial in the words that they say to him. Have a look at this in verses three to, from verses 3 to 5. His brothers are speaking to Jesus. They say, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe him. So his brothers know that there are death threats on him. His brothers have this idea that he wants to be a public figure. His brothers have this idea that he wants everyone to sit there and go, oh, look, look at me, look at me, look at me. His brothers are seeing the way Jesus conducts himself from how they would see it. Hey, if you want to be popular, if you want everyone to pay attention, then you just let everybody know what you're doing. Why are you all hiding for? Why are you holding back? It clearly lays out this, this slight attitude of resentment toward Jesus, the perfect brother who never did anything wrong. Jesus, the perfect son who always conducted himself towards his parents in the perfect way. The perfect brother who knew the scriptures. The perfect brother who taught the scriptures. The perfect brother who lived the scriptures. The brother who their whole lives is going to be a big deal. He was a rabbi with public acclaim who was going to change the world. And, and, so, and, and so there's this attitude. Who, who's like, I've always considered myself, and if my sister's watching, hey, Shah, I've always considered myself the black sheep of the family. Okay, and I, I have I have my perfect my perfect older brother. That's Fritz. Hey, Fritz, my perfect brother. Okay, I got my perfect brother. I got I got my tough brother. That's Rod. You know, I've got, and then there's just yeah, there's this Joe. I was, I was actually the sickly one. Okay, but when you have when you have the, these brothers that are just sort of like 
who have it all together, who are successful, who are doing all those things, you sort of, you, you do get a little bit resentful. Can you imagine being James, the writer of, the, the half-brother of Jesus, who sits there, and imagine this, I think um, we heard it on a, a, a Christian comedian talk about it, imagine having Jesus as your brother. Why can't you be more like Jesus? Why can't you listen like Jesus? Why can't you serve like Jesus? Why can't you be more considerate like Jesus? Imagine if you're hearing that all the time from mum and dad. It's like, I don't like Jesus. That's what, that's what it would probably end up like. And so there's this comfortable deniability that comes from familiarity. Because you're so familiar with that, you become comfortable with that. And in some cases, it'll end up you taking a stand against that. We are told this in Luke chapter 4. Verse 24, this is Jesus speaking. Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his, home, in his hometown. Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 36. A man's enemies will be of his own household. Why? Because Jesus was making the stand, being faithful to who God had called him to be, and that stirred up opposition. And it's the same thing that happens in the public eye too, as the religious leaders are on the lookout for him. They hold their opinions of that, and, and people hold to their opinions of him as well. In verses 11 to 13, we see what people think. We read of how some see him as a good man. We read how others see him as a deceiver, but nobody would actually confront him about it. Nobody would openly say anything. This is the danger of comfortable deniability that we can have in our walks with Jesus. Okay. We can become so familiar with him that we start to think that he's there for our benefit or for, for, that, for our service instead of the other way around. We try to bring him in to accommodate our lifestyle as opposed to molding our life around him and his call and his holiness. We become comfortably, comfortable deniers because if it doesn't work in with what I want to do, then I'll sit there and say, well, then maybe I won't step up and say something about Jesus. Or maybe I won't step up and decide to live holy. Maybe I won't step up and not partake of certain things, certain gossips, certain bad attitudes. Maybe we will decide and be a comfortable denier of those things. See, to much of the modern church in the West, we have become so caught up in being relevant to the world today that we have lost our impact in the world. We have lost our influence upon them. We have lost our identity to a world, both young and old, because people are leaving the faith by droves. People are turning their backs on Christ by, what, I think at the last census, atheism was higher in the census than Christianity. For the first time ever, atheism outnumbered, percentage-wise, how many people were Christians today? Why? Why? Are people so comfortable in denying who Christ is? Is there, I, I, I don't know. I, I work with young people. I talk with young people. I have young people in my home. And when you sit down and talk with them and ask them, even with this, I spoke with this, this young, young woman on Wednesday night, and she was asking me questions about why Christ, why follow Jesus, why this. And for all the answers and questions, for all the answers I gave her, all the questions she gave me showed me that she wanted to believe what she wanted to believe because it accommodated how she wanted to live. 
So it didn't matter how Jesus, and, and that's what I ended up telling her in the end. I said, ultimately, you're going to believe what you want, and you're going to want what you want. And I don't think any other sort of idea of you, and this is why, as David shared last week, and it, prayer is so important. Dependence on the Spirit is so important. Our, our existence has become an ancient truth that is no longer needed for the wider world and that atheism is now concerned, is now considered the more popular worldview. So that's the first thing. Are you a comfortable denier of the person of Christ in your own life? Second one, which I find is interesting, is what I call a picture of deliberate ignorance. This is from verses 14. Isn't it frustrating when people willfully and intentionally close their eyes to plain facts laid out before them and choose to hold on to that mindset that defies those plain facts. We are now in an age where people can be what they want to be if they feel like it, regardless of the facts. And, and to sit there and, and to quote facts, you're now viewed as being bigoted or discriminatory. You, you boo, you're accused of being na- narrow-minded. Now, in this case, it is as Jesus teaches at the festival. So he ends up going to the festival later. He says to his brothers, I'm not going to go. But then he goes again later because he wants to go in secret. He wants to go privately. And now he starts teaching at the festival. Now, at the festival, we read, we read this part here. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? So Jesus comes. He's already impressed the, the rabbis as a 12-year-old boy in Luke chapter 2 when he answers questions. Here he is teaching now as an adult. These guys ask, well, who is this man? Who is this man? Firstly, there's like this disregarding of his education. How did he get such learning without being taught? He's a carpenter. He doesn't sit under, under any great rabbis. He hasn't gone through the appropriate channels. He hasn't studied at the right Bible colleges. He doesn't read from the right translation. It's like, well, why? So what are you doing? They're trying to dismiss his credibility based upon a whole bunch of other things, which is what people do, don't they? So that's the first thing they do. The second thing they do is they're discarding of his legitimacy by seeking to Look at him being crazy. So he talks about, he makes these these claims in verses 16 to 19. And he says in verse 19, this is why you want to kill me. Uh, The reason why I'm not reading those things of Jesus yet, we're going to look at those a little bit later on. But in verse 20, you read this. You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? That's what they say in verse 20. So they're trying to dismiss his sanity, his state of mind, by saying he's a crazy man. You're crazy. Who's trying to kill you? If I, can, if I can ruin your credibility, if I can ruin your testimony, if I can ruin your witness, then nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to have anything to say. Or, or if they are, they're just going to discard you. They're just going to dismiss you. If I can label him a myth, if I can label him as paranoid, then he cannot be worthy of or deserving of trust, which is why they then attack what I call his qualifications. And this is what I call a picture of personal justification, all right? Today, many people use what's called um, an argument from authority. Who's, who's ever heard of that statement, an argument from authority? Has anyone heard of that statement? Yeah, 
Brad has, okay? So people sit there and they use, well, you're using an argument from authority, but I refuse to acknowledge your authority. So some people say this when you're sharing the Bible with them. Well, if they say, I don't believe the Bible. Okay? And, that, and when say, people say, well, I don't believe, well, the Bible says this, I don't believe the Bible. And so that, that's what's called an argument from authority. And you might have people sit there and say, well, I'm qualified in this. I can speak on medicine because I'm a doctor. I can speak on science because I'm a scientist. I can speak on biology because I'm a scientist. I can speak on neurology because I'm a neurologist. I can speak on this, that, on the other because I'm qualified in those areas. It's called an argument from authority. But the problem is this. I don't need to be a mechanic to know that there's something wrong with my car. I don't need to be, no, I don't need to be a doctor to know that one of my kids is sick. Okay, that's what's called common sense. So you have this argument from authority, and this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to sit down, and they're using this argument from authority to justify their non-belief in Jesus. So these religious leaders, who are the skeptics of, skeptics of Jesus, they sit there and say this in verse 27. We know where this man is from, when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. So they're using this argument to justify their belief of not to accept him as the Messiah. Well, we are, look, we know, we know where he's from. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, we read, isn't this the carpenter's son? In Luke chapter 4, verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed. Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? In John 6, 42, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know. So they, they, they've got all of this information. Well, we know who Jesus is. We know who Mary is. We know who Joseph is. How can he be the Messiah? Forget, forget the feeding of the masses when he fed 5,000 people with some fish and some bread. Forget when Jesus walked on the water and was able to calm a storm just by speaking it. Forget the times that he heals a leper that's in front of everybody. Forget when he walks and John the Baptist makes a proclamation in front of everybody and says, behold, the Son of God, the, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Forget the testimony of the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove and a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Forget miracle after miracle. Forget teaching after teaching. Forget all of this stuff and just go with, hey, um, we know where he's from. We're not supposed to know where he's from. Forget every other evidence to justify your non-belief of who Jesus is. Now what's crazy is that we do this as Christians as well. We choose to forget the hundreds of times that he provides for us. The hundreds of times that he imbues us with peace in difficult times. The hundreds of times that he enables us to do something or to go beyond something that we thought we'd never be able to do. The hundreds of times when we come across a divine appointment when somebody asks you, can you tell me about Jesus? Forget about all of those things because we sit there and say, I'm afraid. I don't get it. I can't see what's gonna happen after. We forget and we use all of those things for our own personal justification. You see, the, these guys, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they forgot all the evidence that, 
pointed to his earthly existence, to, to point it to his legitimacy of him being exactly who he said he would be, to justify who they wanted to be. And, and here's the thing. If, if you're choosing to forget all of these things to accommodate what you want to do, to, to justify how you want to be, to, to basically give you an excuse to live how you want to live, then you will be held accountable for that. To whom much is given, we are told in the Scriptures, of them much will be required. The truth that we have in Christ is the truth that we will be held accountable to. Is the truth that we will be measured against. And here's what's crazy. All, all of those things that I mentioned about us justifying, you know, by forgetting everything he's done in order to justify that, that's done because it meets my standards, because it accommodates my life, because it makes me feel better about me. And it involves from me no sacrifice, no loss, no discipline. That's why. Which leads to this last little dialogue, this last little interaction, which is what I call a picture of outright defiance. This is the contention Jesus brings in verses 45 to 52. Jesus openly stated this, that he will bring a sword instead of peace in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Meaning that because of who he is, that he's not of this world, but from the Father, there will be conflict. Matthew 10, 36 says, A man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. When you look through this final part, this final, there is this contention that arises because the guards who go to arrest Jesus in the temple where he taught, he, they said this, verse 46, No man, no man speaks the way this man does. That was their reply. They went to arrest Jesus. They come back. They ask him, where is he? Why didn't you arrest him? They were, they were dumbfounded by the power of the words of Jesus and just thought, no one speaks this way. No one speaks this way. There's something about him that forced them not to do anything and just to go back. What happens? They get in trouble. They get in trouble. The religious leaders use their own righteousness as standards for whether Jesus is legitimate or not. Um, read with me in verses 47 to 49. It says this. 40. Okay, it says, okay, so the guards say this. No one ever spoke the way this man did in verse 46. You mean he has deceived you also? That's their first thing. They, they were fooled. They're stupid. They were deceived. They deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Look at the condemnation that they bring. Thank you. Can I have my... Uh, that's, I'm sorry. I need my sweat towel. Once again, this is a thank you to Simon and Vivian for my sweat towel. All right. Sorry. But think about it. The first thing they do, have you been deceived? And then they say this. Do you see any other of us following him? Do you see any of the other educated, religious, upright, holy men follow him? No. It's all of these ignorant, common folk that have gone after him. And that's their reason not to believe. Then one of their own speaks up. Nicodemus. Nicodemus, 
who went on John chapter 3, who stole away at night to meet him by himself and was confronted with the beauty of who Jesus Christ is. Nicodemus goes, and Nicodemus speaks up. And straight away, he is accused of being from Galilee himself. He is accused. Are you from Galilee as well? Oh, you're one, of, you're one of these Jesus folks, aren't you? One of these Jesus freaks. That's who you are, Nicodemus. And they dismiss his argument. That's in verse 52, um, up to verse 52. I think 48, 50, 50 to 52, sorry. All right. And so you have this, this whole, this outright defiance. They, they now draw this line in the sand, and it doesn't matter what you will show them, that's what they will choose to hold to. That's what they will believe. And if, in some translations, they have verse 53. Then they all went home. What I like about that last line is this. Regardless of the position that you take, regardless of what you hold on to, as whether you're one who's, who comfortably denies, whether you're one of deli- deliberately ignorant, whether you want to justify yourself personally, or you just want to defy outrightly, what we do is what? We, we, draw, we withdraw. When confronted in such a way, we withdraw, and we go our home. We go home. We go and we hold to what's comfortable for us. We hold that that makes us feel good. We'll get around those people that will agree with us and not challenge us. We'll get around those people that will make us feel better about ourselves as opposed to saying, hang on, maybe he's got something there. And so we'll go home and we'll hope that everything will blow over. We'll hope that everything will just sort of calm down. But it doesn't change the reality. See, which, which of these pictures are you? Which of these pictures have you experienced? Which of these dialogues have you encountered in your walk with Jesus as you've see, sought to represent him? And the question is, at the end there, how is one stirred up or, or made aware of these positions? How, how are you woken up from such things, or how do you wake up others? And what I like about this, how can I put it this way? What I like about this is that when we look at the way Jesus conducts himself in each of these dialogues, in each of these encounters, they are examples of how we too can incorporate those same things and how we represent Jesus to others as well. For example, in the comfortable denial, in the comfortable denial in verses seven, in chapter seven, verses starting at verse six to verse eight. When his brothers sat there and basically didn't believe who he was, said for them, hey, why don't you go down? If you want to be a popular figure, a public figure, this is what you should do. Let your disciples see. In verses 6 to 7, Jesus responds this way. He says, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to, I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. What I like about those verses is that Jesus remains true to the calling that God has placed on his life. He doesn't compromise that calling. He doesn't sway for the sake of accommodating how people view him. He remains faithful to the job his father gave him. And so he says, okay, well, I'm going to go when my father's time is. Not when yours is. We walk to a timetable. We walk to the beat of a different drum. We walk to a timetable that's not of this world, but it's it's, it's governed and controlled by our Heavenly Father, as revealed in the Scriptures. That's how we are to be governed. The the next one, when you sit there, 
when, when you look in verses, the deliberate ignorance, Jesus says this in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 7. He says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Verses 23 and 24. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Second thing that he does here. One, he holds true to the word of God to the message God gave him. It wasn't influenced by what the world had to say. It wasn't influenced by, by what was considered acceptable back in those days. He just held true to that, and then he held true, and then objectively lived that truth out. He challenged them. You can circumcise on the Sabbath. Then why, when I heal somebody's whole body, you get angry at that? You don't judge correctly. You don't judge according to the heart of God. When it comes to the personal justification and, and the outright defiance, you got these verses, 28 and 29. He says, you know me, you know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Verses 28 29. Verses 37 and 38. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, the point of these passages in relation to the pictures that are shown is an example for me and for all of us as the church, is that impact is made not by retreating, but by going forward. Not by compromising, but by standing strong. Not by watering down, but remaining pure. That's what it comes down to. Jesus remained true to his calling, true to who he is. We hear this all the time. We hear this all the time in the world. Be true to who you are. Be true to who you are. And yet I see so many Christians being true to what the world expects him to be. That we are, are, are forced into this image of how we're supposed to look as opposed to how God wants us to be. There's the guy who played um, the passion of the Christ. Uh, who played Jesus, Jim, this is his name here, Jim Caviezel, I don't know how to pronounce it. This is what he says. He says, the problem is that modern day Christianity has become so, that's wrong, weak, obviously, so weak and useless. Modern day Christians are more afraid of the devil than they are of God. But I want you to take note of this. Modern day Christianity has become weak and useless. Why? Because we are governed by what the world says as opposed to what the Bible says. We are dictated by how people see us as opposed to how the Spirit has transformed us and changed us and how God sees us. Now, I'm not saying not being loving. I'm not saying not being kind. What I am saying is that we need to get back to the source of our faith get back to the truth of who Jesus is and stand on him and on him alone. There is a, a, a man who, his name's Andrew Tate, and I came across a video of his, and he, he, the question was asked him because he's become a Muslim. And the question asked, because he, he spoke about being a Christian before, and he's become a Muslim, and they asked, why did you become a Muslim? And he said, because Christians don't believe the Bible. I see people 
who say they're leaders within the Christian faith, who don't believe the Bible, who are weak and will take a step back on what they believe because they've offended someone else and they won't stand strong for what they believe. Why would I want to serve a God like that? And that's why he didn't convert to Christianity. He believes in God, but he saw what Jim said, said, he saw the Christian faith as weak and useless, which was far, far from the truth. Now, granted, he's looking at an exposure which doesn't portray, I don't think, anyway, an, an accurate portrayal of what God is doing. But this is, this is the reality that we're living in today. I was speaking, once again, on Wednesday night with this girl, and I, I shared with her, and I said how everything that is manifest physically is the, is, is the manifestation of a spiritual reality. And she goes to me, well, what do you mean? And she goes, can you give me an example? And I said, have you ever noticed how everybody in the world today, in society today, is really accepting and really welcoming of every single religion except Christianity. They're accepting of every single deity except Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed that? And she goes, well, yeah. And he goes, that's spiritual reality. It's a, it's a, there's a reality of that there's this warfare going on, and the pivotal figure in that warfare is Christ. So what do they do? They attack Christ. And so this is, this, this is what we are confronted with. See, this is, well, like I said, is the problem with people. The problem with people is that we are comfortably deniers. We're comfortable deniers. We are willfully ignorant. We personally justify our position or we are outright defiant. And the problem is we are like that as Christians as well. And the way we get back to the beauty of who Jesus is, is not by compromising who he is, but by acknowledging the reality of who he really is as king of kings and lord of lords and submitting to that by taking his word and abiding by this, of knowing this, of arming ourselves in the armor of God as I've been doing in the devotions, of praying for one another and as an army of God walking together in the same direction. Not by compromising the beauty of who Jesus is, but by standing firm on that. Not by watering down the beauty of his message, but holding firm to it. Because it's in those ways that impacts are made. It's in those ways that people see the difference. It's in that way Jesus is glorified in your life. And that's the challenge I leave you with today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Thank you for the beauty of, of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that in him we have life, in him we are given grace, in him we have strength, in him we are made whole, and I pray that you will help us in a world full of darkness, in a world full of deniers and, and people that are willfully ignorant, in a, in a world full of people justifying sin and, and who are defiant to your truth. I pray that you will help us as your people to walk in holiness, to walk in your word, to walk in the spirit so that we might not fulfill the lusts of our flesh, to shine as lights, to be that city on a hill. Father, that we might be the church that is pure and acceptable in your sight. I pray that we, Father, will be stirred within our hearts to be courageous and bold in your spirit, that we will not dismay because we are on your side. And as we go from here, that you will use us 
as the, the, the means through which others will come to know the greatness of who you are. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your people. I thank you for your son. May you be glorified in each of our lives this day. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.